All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 79. We're here. We're ready for your calls. Going to be joined by my regular co-host, JD. And we're firing everything up right now. Can't wait to hear from you. Let's go ahead and add our first one. I see someone's up here, and, and I know our co-hosts are coming up here. What's up, this guy stinks? What do you want to talk about? Yeah, I just want to talk about Neil Brown at West Virginia. I think he's just absolutely a bum, and he belongs to be in jail. I just wanted to hear what anybody else thinks about that. <laughs> jail, all right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And I know JD and Sirius Thanks for joining up here. That's He's definitely seems to be wearing out his welcome. That's been absolutely clear with what's been going on and what we've been seeing from West Virginia fans on the subreddit. JD, Sirius, did you want to put some thoughts in on there? And by the way, welcome. I should have let you guys have a quick intro. <laughs> no, it's all good. Let's just go ahead and straight the Brown question. I don't think it's any kind of question right now that Neil Brown has not been delivering what everybody expected. I know that, especially in year one, after Dana Holgerson had left West Virginia to go to Houston, I think a lot of people gave him a lot of time for rebuilding. But you can't really be that confident after watching falling apart to Pitt to start the season and then a loss to Kansas at home in overtime. Now, granted, Kansas is now 4-0. They could be the Big 12 favorites for all we know at this point right now. Uh, but the fact of the matter is you have two losses like that in year three when you have your guys and you are supposed to bring in everything that you've already promised to West Virginia. That's a really, really hard thing for you to actually be able to come up and say, hey, you know what? I'm delivering on all these promises when and, you know, I came in in my first year and I said, I'm going to build you a product to be proud of. I very distinctly remember covering one of the games up there in 2019 when Texas Tech came into town. And that was a game where Texas Tech started playing Mountain Road or uh, excuse me, Country Roads out of their own locker room because they ended up beating West Virginia that badly. Uh, and Neil Brown was saying, you know, this is a turnaround year. I'm going to make a strong product. But we're two years later. We're still not really seeing the type of results that we really wanted to see out of Neil Brown. I think when you look at the rest of the landscape, we've already seen Jeff Collins is out as a Power 5 coach. Scott Frost is out as a Power 5 coach. Herm Edwards is out as a Power 5 coach. When you look at the rest of that landscape, I mean, I think West Virginia might start to get that itchy trigger, itchy trigger finger to try to think, hey, you know what? We got to get on this coaching carousel as well. And when you look at this schedule that's coming up for West Virginia, you know, they did get that nice win in the Black Diamond game against Virginia Tech, but you're about to go on the road to Texas. You host a ranked Baylor. Uh, you've also got Oklahoma. You got Kansas State. You got Oklahoma State. Not making a bowl might be very much on the table for West Virginia this year. And, uh, you know, if Neil Brown fails to do it this year, I don't think West Virginia is going to continue to have the patience for a year four out of him. Yeah, I don't even think it's the fact that he's the coach at West Virginia. I don't think he could win a game as if he was the coach of the Gridiron Gang. I mean, they don't even have real opponents to play. He couldn't beat them. The guy stinks. He really does truly belong in jail. It just, it's, it's just plain and simple. He belongs in jail. Enough is enough. Let's get him out of here. Well, first and foremost, I will say, at least in defense of Neil Brown, one of the huge things and the reason that he got the West Virginia job was because he won the Sun Belt with Troy. I mean, back in 2017, he won 11 games. He went 7-1 and one in the Sun Belt. Uh, very famously also got an upset over a ranked LSU team 
in Tiger Stadium. Got a couple million dollars in order to do that. Uh, but then ultimately he ended up winning a bowl game as well. And that's one of the reasons why he was brought to West Virginia. Because if you could win in Troy, Alabama, ideally you could win anywhere else. Uh, but those results just have not materialized so far in Morgantown. Well, you know, J.D., I mean, I do wonder. Sometimes we've seen this and I don't – it's still a little too early to – say Clay Helton's going to be a success at Georgia Southern on the long term, but certainly he got everyone's attention by upsetting Nebraska, if that's considered an upset, but at least getting Scott Frost fired by winning in Lincoln. So I do wonder with some coaches, are they better suited for programs at a G5 level with different kind of situations? You know, an older one, and I'm, I'm reaching back for some folks who may not remember, but Dan Hawkins is one of those, you know, superstar at Boise State. Boise State got on the national radar when he was their head coach. And Chris Peterson took the ball and ran with it and maintained that that level of success. But he, you know, he went to Colorado and just bombed, completely bombed. And, you know, now he's found himself back in coaching at his alma mater, UC Davis, in the FCS. And they're just happy because he, you know, basically keeps winning. They're they're not necessarily challenging for the FCS title, but they're not a weakling in FCS. So to an extent, I always wondered, and I'm happy to see he's coaching again. I was curious to see how he would do if he decided to pick up the mantle. But I wonder if that's maybe what's going on here with Neil Brown. Is is West Virginia, is the P5 program as prominent as the Mountaineers, maybe not quite suited to his talents? I'm not sure, but it's I'm curious to see how the rest of the season goes. I'm definitely curious to see how they do at Texas. That's something I, I'm – you know, that might be interesting to see how that game goes. But, hey, thanks for joining us. <laughs> this guy stinks. It was, it was good kind of yeah, rolling here, off. Here's, here's, Go ahead. Here's what we'll see in Texas. Neil Brown is the best Division three coach in Power 5 football. And, and that that's that. Just thanks for letting me. <laughs> I think Lance Leopold's got an argument there, though. I mean, <laughs> but, uh, but thanks again. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate hearing from you. Hey, Freddie, what's up? You, we'd love to hear from you. Hey man, thanks. I'm just wondering. Uh, I got a parlay question. Two two team parlay. Uh, do the Wolverines cover and does USC cover this weekend? That's all I want to know. Hmm. <laughs> let's see here. So USC has. Oh gosh, who's there? Who I should know this. Gosh darn it, I'm a Trojan. I should absolutely know this, especially for before tomorrow's show when we're hosting ASU. Uh... <laughs> oh yeah, ASU. Yeah. Oh, USC by 27 is the approximate spread, 26 and a half, something like that, over uh, ASU. And then for the uh, for, for Michigan, it's Iowa, and it's only 10 and a half. So that's, uh, that one could be interesting because Michigan's not got a good track record at going into to Kinnick with that pink locker room, and uh, especially when they're ranked. So Iowa defense versus Michigan State offense, you know, can Michigan State or can Michigan score uh, what like fifteen points? Listen, I mean they might be able to that over under thirty two and a half points right now, <laughs> at least to a typical sports book. Uh, and man, uh, I'm just trying to think of you know I keep remembering games like uh, once upon a time before uh, Rutgers and Iowa set the record for having the lowest over-under in the modern era. Uh, I think it was uh, Michigan and Northwestern during that moon game 
uh, where the over-under was something like 34 and a half, maybe 35 points. Uh, to see this type of uh, 42 and a half, you know, I'm pretty confident that, uh, you know, Iowa can uh, get up to 21 safeties uh, and we can see a field goal coming out of uh, Michigan in order to get that over-under. But in terms of uh, covering, uh, you know, I think the Michigan uh, Wolverines are kind of getting their first real pulse game. Uh, We saw uh, them take on Maryland this last week. Uh, They had the opportunity to get punched in the face and actually respond back uh, to a team that was in it all the way through the fourth quarter. We haven't really seen a whole lot of competition against Michigan yet, Uh, but I feel a little bit more confident in Michigan's defense than I do Iowa's offense at the moment. So as of right now, I mean, it's probably going to be the Michigan Wolverines will cover. Yeah. I I think I feel safer hammering the, uh, the under on that one. Um, that I would trying to to make a guess on whether Iowa can cover. Um, I don't think they're going to clear the the over unless Michigan throws like three pick sixes. So I think that's probably about your best chance of of clearing forty three points in that game. With USC, I'm I'm intrigued to see how they do against Arizona State. I'm I'm a little more tentative than I would be before the Oregon State game because the Oregon State game that was just watching two teams had their defenses completely shut each other down for most of the game. I mean, USC and Oregon State, that last quarter was where a lot of the action happened. And even then, I mean, Oregon State's strong, so now we're kind of in this situation of, well, their defense seemed strong, but we're still, I don't know if we still know enough about them. I mean, both teams were undefeated heading into it, although I don't think, you know, the media seemed to have as much faith in Oregon State. They were unranked heading into that game. So I think people were waiting to see how they did against USC. But, you know, I, if, if those Beavers, if the Beavers defense ends up being tremendous, which could very well be the case, we may watch USC explode on Arizona state. And frankly, they probably want to prove it because they want to show that offense was just unstoppable. I mean, they were averaging over 50 points a game in the first three games. And then they, you know, they, they put up 17 points against Oregon State. It was, I think, the first time, gosh, I think I saw the stats somewhere. It was like, it had been a long time since USC even won a game that was where they scored under 20 points because Helton's teams, just if they, they weren't really making those games happen. So I'm uh, curious to see, uh, I would expect them to try an offensive explosion. Obviously, Arizona State didn't have a great game against Utah last week, so it seems that they're kind of listing and sort of directionless, so they may be ripe for this, for USC to get its groove back. But, yeah, I know, J.D., you wanted to add something to that. Yeah, I think one of the other things, too, that you would also have to consider with this is we know for a fact that USC can score. Uh, We saw, you know, against Oregon State, which is a formidable team this year, they have a fairly strong defense, uh, really helped uh, hold down USC's traditional firepower on offense uh, with Caleb Williams, Jordan Addison, and all these superstars. Uh, But I think one thing that you're also going to have to consider is I feel fairly strongly that USC could easily put up 24 in this game, likely put up even more on the board. Right now, Arizona State, without Herm Edwards, you know, he was fired for a reason. They struggled against Eastern Michigan. Uh, but then again, this last week, uh, you got to remember, Utah is a good football team, but Arizona State finished that game with six rushing yards. That's not a typo. That's six rushing yards that Arizona State was able to put together. Uh, their offense was held to 59 total yards in the first half against the Utah Utes. And Emory Jones, I know that when he transferred from Florida, a lot 
lot of people were wondering, you know, did he just need a reset? Did he not need to be uh, in a Dan Mullen type of offense? And right now, it doesn't seem like he's really got the uh, answer and the abilities that he's got. Like, he was sacked three times against Utah. That offensive line him enough time to throw. He doesn't have the run support right now in order for him to properly thrive. Uh, we've always said that the best way to beat USC would be to be in a shootout with them. And right now, I don't see it with with Arizona State for them to have the capability to keep up points-wise with USC. Now, as far as about that 23.5 to 26 points goes, uh, depending on what sports book you're looking at, uh, I think that's a pretty wide chasm. But I would feel that USC should be able to keep that up because, again, similar to that question of Iowa and Michigan, do I have more faith in Michigan's uh, defense than I do Iowa's offense? It's the same exact thing here. I have a lot more trust in USC's offense to put up points on the board than I do Arizona State's opportunity to keep up at that same pace. Yeah, and you know, I, I, it's so funny. I'd mentioned at the beginning of the show, it certainly wouldn't hurt to do a quick plug. Tomorrow night, we're going to have Ryan Abraham, who runs uscfootball.com, and he's got a much more in-depth view of the Trojans and their potential against Arizona State than, than any of us over here. He's got, I mean, one thing I just noticed is how many Trojan fans were happy to see we were going to have him on. I mean, that, was, that speaks for itself. Uh, we were kind of blown away by the response we got on Reddit for that. But I'm curious to see. And now you've got – I think that's going to be – I'm going to definitely bring that up tomorrow when we talk to Ryan for sure. And he's going to probably take calls, so we'll be able to let some people on there. But, Freddie, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So let's see here. Pog, I'm letting you up. Sorry about that. I usually try to be a little more smooth on that transition. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, you're all right. Uh, my question is regarding the Minnesota Golden Gophers. Obviously, the first three opponents pretty weak, but absolutely stomped Michigan State in their own home. And the rest of the Big T- with the rest of the Big Ten West looking as weak as it is, is it crazy to expect no more than two losses from this team? I don't think that's crazy at all. I think Michigan State, I mean, first of all, I think the, my favorite response to that was Washington fans realizing, oh, you know, maybe that win was not quite as impressive as we thought it was going to be prior week when they were able to, you know, knock off the, the Spartans. But certainly looking at Minnesota right now, I, there was a lot of curiosity before the season. How is it going to be, you know? The uh, I think everyone would. I mean, there was some happy, you know, happiness before, you know, that they were able to bring back, you know, the offensive coordinator Kirk, and that was that was a big deal. But how were they? How was it going to gel? I mean, were we going to see Tanner Morgan, you know, take a step forward? Were we going to, you know, obviously, you know, bring back Muhammad Ibrahim? That's a huge benefit. He's he's just a beast of a running back, and he keeps turning heads now that he's healthy. So we've seen that. And I think that was going to be the question. You're right. I mean, anyone who's followed the Gophers over the years knows that they'll generally do well with the non-conference schedule. I think Bowling Green uh, it was a weird exception the other year. But they'll generally blow right through the non-conference schedule. That's typically not too bad. And then struggle when they get to Big Ten play. But this, this year, I, it seems to be different. I Lived in Minnesota now for about 20 years, so I know that there's no bigger curse than hope for a, a Minnesota sports fan because it always just things just tend to go really south in the most embarrassing fashion, you know, at, at some point, usually later in the season. But that said, two losses, I think that's reasonable, especially with the schedule as it is now. I mean, it would, the, the toughest game, it seems, at this point 
is going to be at Penn State. That is going to be a heck of a game with the least interesting trophy or before the newer ones, but one of the least interesting trophy games, by the way, the governor's victory bell. I'm very familiar with seeing that thing. But, you know, I think that's going to be potentially the most difficult game. There's definitely questions. You never know what the spoiler makers are going to do, and they're coming to town this week. You got at Illinois, which is still kind of a team that's – I'm not sure what to expect out of them. Nebraska, Rutgers, Northwestern, not really anything I'd be concerned about, but I'd be really curious to see if they can beat both or split the classic rivalries against Iowa and Wisconsin. Wisconsin definitely doesn't look as strong as they've been in the past. We've seen them stumble to Wazoo and then, you know, Ohio State. But And, and J.D. can speak to that. He was actually covering that, that game for us. But Minnesota, I think two losses would actually be really reasonable. I mean, I, I would be I would be shocked if it's less, but I think two is a, is something I, I would feel confident in. But, J.D., what do you think? Yeah, I mean, for Minnesota, really the only ranked team that is still remaining is Penn State. And then, of course, I to cover that, uh, uh, you know, Wisconsin uh, appearance at Ohio Stadium uh, this last weekend. And one of the crazy stats that – uh, I saw and reported on was uh, prior to that game, Jim Leonard, who's the uh, defensive coordinator over at Wisconsin, had never given up more than 41 points in a single four game uh, football or a four quarter football game. And then, uh, yeah, uh, Ohio State uh, ended up reigning 52 on his defense. And by the time Wisconsin had even crossed midfield, uh, Wisconsin was down 20 to nothing to Ohio State. Now, granted, I think Ohio State is the world killer right now. They're probably the best team altogether outside of Georgia. Uh, You could throw Alabama in that mix as well, but it's going to be one of those three teams that's playing in the national championship this year. Uh, But uh, for Wisconsin, uh, especially that loss to uh, Washington State, uh, that seemed a little bit out of the norm. And then just showing up lifeless in Columbus this weekend. Uh, There's something odd going on with this Wisconsin Badgers team. And we're seeing some really great things happening with PJ Flex program where they're actually clicking everything along. They're getting wins. They're doing the little things that they need to. So with all that said, I'm sure it's going to come down to something like we're going to have a 10 win Minnesota team heading into uh, the uh, game for Paul Bunyan's axe. And uh, we end up seeing Wisconsin win something like 44 to 10. Uh, and then ultimately knocking out Minnesota out of the big 10 West. Cause that's why I feel it happens every time. I think you said it perfectly earlier, Bob Ack. Uh, the most dangerous thing in Minnesota is hope. Uh, I would love to see PJ Black pull something off. I would love to see Minnesota be Rose bowl for the first time since 1967. Uh, but overall on paper, it looks good for Minnesota, but we also know that's what ultimately gives the worst amount of despair at the very end for the Golden Gophers. You know, and you brought up something interesting because I thinking about what would be their best chance to make a Rose Bowl this year. And I think it would be Ohio State completely winning out, getting their Ohio State gets a place in the CFP, and Minnesota, as a runner-up, gets the spot in the Rose Bowl. Because as we know, the Rose Bowl will bend over backwards to take a Big Ten versus Pac-12 matchup. As long as that's even feasible, we'll, we'll, we'll you know, set that aside for another talk. But I think this, it is weird, though. I mean, U.S. I mean, it's weird as a, as anyone who follows Minnesota goes. It I could see them winning out. Like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a crazy thing with this schedule. It would need a heck of a game at Penn State. That would be the big challenge. But the rest, 
the rest of their game, I mean, none of these games aren't winnable. I mean, Minnesota has put enough up there, has put enough, demonstrated their ability enough that I wouldn't be shocked if they, I mean, I would be surprised if they won out, but I wouldn't be as shocked as previous years. Maybe that's what we're seeing. We're seeing Fleck finally get the Gophers to where he wanted. I mean, because certainly, you know, he had that track record at Western Michigan, and maybe now we're seeing it work out here. And again, just a note on the Rose Bowl itself. Uh, obviously, this year, the Rose Bowl is not a playoff game. So contractually, they will take the highest ranked Big Ten team and the Big or the uh, Pac-12 team, uh, even if uh, they have somebody going off to uh, the playoffs, even if they are the champions. So theoretically, if Minnesota is the runner-up and there's not something crazy like Michigan has gone 11-1 and with the exception of a close loss to Ohio State, uh, more than likely Minnesota would end up playing in the Rose Bowl if they did win out uh, and end up winning uh, the Big Ten West, at least for this year. Oh, wow, J.D., that is absolutely, that would be the cruelest way for them to not get in. <laughs> Imagine that. They, go, they get all the way through, lose to Ohio State, and then get, you know, picked over, like, or reverse, you know, Michigan makes it all the way through, and that's their one loss, you know, and then Ohio State right. one loss. Oh, my god. Right. Mi- oh, Minnesota wow. does something that where, you know. Min- they- you know, you just talked into existence what would be, like, the perfect <laughs> storm for a minnesota fan like i hear that i'm like oh no that that would actually be how it would go down and then minnesota would belly flop in a bowl or something like that you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) 11 and 2 minnesota ranked number seven in the country not being able to play in the rose bowl because 11 and 1 michigan didn't have to play ohio state a second time (laughs) oh man well Fuck, how are you feeling about the, the Gophers? I mean, you know, this is kind of, I know you, you, you seem optimistic, but I love the reservation you had with maybe two losses. Yeah, I mean, from an ob- most objective that I can be, I think we should be favored in every game except Penn State. But being also a Minnesota Gophers fan, I also know we could lose, like, the game against Purdue just as easily. So, cautiously optimistic. Yeah, that's the healthiest healthiest view I've ever heard. And that that's a that's a true gopher fan as someone who did his graduate degree there. So I mean I, I always joke with people. I went it, it came up, gosh, somebody mentioned it and it turns out I think they were they were in the band for the Gophers at this one game. But in two thousand it must have been oh two thousand three. Yeah, it was two thousand three. I went to see Minnesota game against Michigan in the Metrodome. And the Metrodome was always tepid for the Gophers. The only time it would ever fill up is if it was, you know, Iowa in town or, or Wisconsin in town. It would be like 60-40 or something like that. But this one game, it was like a perfect storm for the Gophers. They had, I can't remember if they were undefeated, but they were ranked higher than Michigan. And they hadn't beat Michigan in like a long time for the little brown jug. Then again, a perfect storm happens. The Twins, who were still sharing the Metrodome, made the playoffs. So they had to move the game from Saturday to Friday. So suddenly, this Michigan at Minnesota game on Friday is the only game that's going to be on in prime time. It's exciting because you have two ranked teams except Minnesota for the first time. And even longer, it was ranked higher than Michigan. The Metrodome was bonkers. I'd never, I'd never, I mean, I know Vikings games got that way, but I'd never see the Gophers game where you could hear the entire arena starting to shake when they would do the, you know, when everyone would spell out Minnesota, M-I-N-N, et cetera. Anyway, and then heading into that fourth quarter, 
like it was like 28 to 7 Minnesota. It really, you know, you could feel the vibe. People wanted to storm that field. End of the game, like 30, it was like 37, 37-35 Michigan. It was like the biggest comeback in the history of the Wolverines. And I just remember being there with a bunch of other grad students. We'd all gone to other schools. Some of us got to Ohio State. I went to USC. And we were just in horror watching the Gophers, like, do everything Minnesota sports tend to do in, in the worst uh, possible time. So, anyway, I just had to, I just had to mention that because uh, that taught me my lesson about hope and being a, a sports fan in the state of Minnesota. But we'll see. We'll be optimistic, realistically. Thanks, Pog. We appreciate it. Infinite Auburn, what's up? We'd love to hear from you. Hey, yeah, I was just uh, curious from an outside perspective, what is y'all's opinion on the state of the Auburn football program and where do you see things going the rest of this season or the rest of this year? The Auburn football program is currently a hot mess with a slight (laughs) touch of dumpster fire, but that's kind of like situation normal there at this point. So, um, Yeah, uh, the Missouri game was um, that was that was technically technically a game, um, definitely one of the the gamiest games that we've seen so so far this season. Um, just some really confounding decisions. Honestly, it looked like Brian Harson wanted that fifty million dollar severance um, for his for his contract buyout. And I think he might have been a little the most. Uh, probably not for a field goal. Um, when both teams were struggling to score, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like in some senses, you know, everything is is contextual, right? So, like, we hammer teams that don't go for it on fourth down. We hammer teams that do. Um, in a game like that, I think where you are just. Both teams are struggling so much. That seems like one of those cases where minute and a half, I think, left on the clock. Like you just go ahead and get the points, and then try to force them to actually prove that they can score because they haven't really done it very much the entire game. Um, but but I think versus, part of the problem. Did, did you watch the game? Because like, our, uh, our, yeah, our kicker parts kicker of it. He, he he missed. It's not reflected in how many times he missed because he missed and, like, Mizzou would get a penalty and he got a re-kick and then he would make it. <laughs> so, it wasn't as reflected in the final, like, box score how many times he missed. I think he missed three times, if I'm not mistaken. And so, I kind yeah, and- of don't blame Arson too much for that. And then on the fourth and one, the good thing is everybody was complaining that in the past he was not using tank in those situations. Well, he used tank. The problem is, I'm sure everybody saw the picture of like uh, Troxel, one of our linemen. I think it was a left guard. He just stayed in a stance, and somebody from Mizzou ran right by and got <laughs> the tank immediately. But um, so I can't. I yeah, can't so really it, blame him for that. I mean, it, yeah, I get that aspect of it. You know that that's part of the context, right? That you know, if you don't have confidence in your kicker, you're going to go for it more often. If you feel the need to try to prove people wrong and and try to run out some jumbo packages, that kind of thing, to, you know, in the short yardage situations. Um, but at the same time, like in that situation, why not go for it? Um, and then, you know, but he got bailed out. To be perfectly honest, in in overtime, yeah. 
There, there's no other way, there's no other way to describe that. Like Missouri literally had the game in their hands. Like they had to win and quite literally dropped the ball. Um, so yeah, I think that based off of this, it's it's going to be interesting how the LSU game goes next week because uh, Brian Kelly may be starting to get things going the way that they're supposed to. And then, of course, like the honestly, the Georgia game probably should be pay per view only. It's a loss. Yeah, I I don't think that you're allowed to show adult content on broadcast television. <laughs> I'm not really sure how CBS is planning on doing this. I'm just imagining it's going to be like pixelated the entire screen, the entire game, basically after kickoff. I guess they can show kickoff, but the rest of it's probably going to be you know content restricted, you know, no minors in the audience, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's the way things are shaping up. If Brian Harson makes it out of the season with a job, I would be kind of surprised and a little disappointed in the Auburn boosters that they couldn't come up with the, enough money to, <laughs> to, to move the needle. But that's just kind of where I'm at on it. That whatever happens with Auburn, I'm not going to be super surprised, but this is a little bit more, of a of a dumpster fire kind of season it feels like than than usual. Yeah, no kidding. And I mean, especially looking at that schedule that's coming ahead, I think one of the things that I delighted the most in on Sunday was seeing that original line with LSU and Auburn, and it opened up with Auburn as a one-and-a-half-point favorite. Uh, just an update, LSU is now a nine-point favorite in this game, but you've hit it on the he- nail on the head with the fact that Auburn being insane is par for the course, and this is just part of the Auburn experience and the Auburn roller coaster. I mean, this is going to be something where, you know, last year Brian Harson is so close to knocking off Alabama and getting like a 10-year extension for, you know, essentially pulling a Gus Malzahn and beating Alabama in the first year. I would not be surprised if, you know, if he somehow still has a job after the LSU game, which I imagine if he loses – He's probably getting that $15 million check and being told to go out the door. But if he makes it all the way up to that Georgia rivalry game, like I would believe either way that either Georgia is going to kill them by 50 or Auburn takes them into overtime. I could easily believe either uh, in that situation if Brian Harson is still the coach. I could believe either if Brian Harson is not the head coach. Uh, Auburn continues to be just the enigma of everything that you could possibly imagine when boosters run the show when you have an administration that is not unified, uh, when you have an athletic director uh, that is still not the long-term permanent solution, uh, it's always a very fun time on the planes. And I'm really interested to see what happens with the game planning for this week because the thing that I picked up from the Mizzou game is I think Brian Harson was just ready to be done. And this was a game that almost seemed like a, no, you lose, no, you lose, no, you lose, no, you lose. Uh, I know that we always try to hammer on those people who do or don't go on fourth down and it blows up in their face. Uh, But this just felt like a game that nobody wanted to win. And especially in an opponent like Mizzou, that's a game that I feel that Auburn should win with a talent differential every single time. And I'm going to be in agreement with Cirrus as well here. Uh, if he still somehow has a job at the end of the season, I think that says a lot more about uh, the cowardice of Auburn boosters. Uh, and now since I've said that, they'll probably fire him tomorrow night. Uh, but Auburn continues to be, for at least an outside observer, one of the most fun programs to watch because they are consistently one of the most chaotic teams of all time.
Absolutely. When you're not, when they're not your team, they're absolutely entertaining. You know, and I, I do, I do have to mention, you know, we were talking about this put on pay-per-view. Well, Georgia, the Georgia Auburn game is on CBS. They pick that as the, as the game to see, not LSU, uh, Tennessee. They pick, they pick that game. So it's going to be, it's going to be a national audience for whatever happens in that game. And for better or worse, Auburn fans, we're all going to be seeing how that goes. Thank you, guys. Thank you. It was great to hear from you. Let's see here. Donnie Neal, what's up? I'm, I'm good. Everything's going good here in Lawrence. We're 4-0. But <laughs> yeah. if, if Lance Leipold leaves for whatever job that be, Nebraska, Auburn, who could Kansas hire to replace him? Oh, that's an interesting one. Well, I mean, clearly he's proven that you can put together an interesting squad. I mean, everyone knew that was possible, although I think it got forgotten for a while there because they had such a dreary run. But I'm wondering, because I know we've talked about this before, J.D., and I know you've, you've had some thoughts on this, about what would be a perfect kind of contract for Coach Leopold to, to keep him there. What do you think there? I know that's something that, I mean, should they go with a, with a contract, you know, like Kentucky's? Should they, should they do something where he's guaranteed extensions if he meets reasonable goals? Nothing crazy where if he, you know, if he touches seven wins at Kansas, he gets an extension for a year. That's what they do with Kentucky. I mean, what do you think, J.D.? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a contract. Like, I'm very sure with 4-0 right now, they're already talking with Lance Leopold about an extension. And again, and I think the second, if Kansas makes a bowl game this year, uh, you know, they're going to do everything in their power to try to keep him. Now I know Nebraska is looking for a potential leader like him. We're seeing other opportunities start to open up across the country of teams who are going, hey, you know what? We need somebody who knows how to build a program from the ground up. Like Georgia Tech uh, is kind of just at sea right now, just completely adrift after getting rid of the triple option. Jeff Collins was an abysmal failure in trying to get them out of there. They're going to be looking for a guy who knows how to build something out of nothing. Uh, Arizona State is trying to build something. Uh, We're not even talking about some of the other teams that might be going down the road and trying to find their own guy who can build something up. Uh, But I think in terms of at least, you know, who do you go for after if Lance Leopold doesn't sign an extension, which I think he'd be a fool out because I think Kansas will do anything right now to keep him and especially give him some kind of contract of, you know what, eh, don't be in last place and you get an extension on your contract. I think that's something Kansas would probably offer and he'd probably accept. Uh, but when I'm looking at teams that, like, you know, you want to keep on building up, you know, Kansas State built a pretty dang good program out of uh, taking North Dakota State's uh, guy uh, with Chris Kleiman, uh, Matt Entz. Uh, you know, is the third consecutive North Dakota State FCS coach uh, who has won national championships uh, with the Bison. And I think he'd do absolutely fantastically at Kansas uh, if Lance Leopold does decide to go take the Nebraska job or the Georgia Tech job or somewhere else other than Kansas next year. I think that would probably be one of your first calls. And man, talk about the excitement and spice you'd have in the Sunflower Showdown with Kleiman going against his former defensive coordinator. But both of them are now at in-state Power 5 schools. Of course, you know, I I would be concerned if it, you know... Obviously, Kleiman's been great, but 
you know, there's been a lot of questions about whether Craig Bowl is a perfect fit. I know there are a lot of Cowboys fans that are getting a little bit tired of that as his predecessor at NDSU. So we'll see. I mean, I'd be curious to see which version comes up. But, you know, <laughs> one thing you have to give Kansas credit, they went to Buffalo twice for head coaches, is one flopped mightily, and then the second one has turned out great. Of course, you know, that Lance had a lot of success before that in uh, in D3. So I would expect them to, to either pulse from G5 or, or take a risk on an FCS program. I think – I'd be a little more surprised because, again, NDA, you're right. I, if, if it were an FCS team, I, you know, Ents would be the one I would expect because it's a real, it's a real surprise when you see an FBS program uh, from a P5 program just suddenly reach down and elevate an FCS head coach. It's a bit riskier of a move, um, but certainly, I mean, I'm. I think a lot of us want to see. I want a lot of us want to see Kansas stick with with Leopold and I, I want to see that, see how they do. But again, you know, teams get desperate. We'll see how the season pans out there. You know, I know, you know, that's an interesting point, you know, seriously, I know you wanted to add a potential candidate. Yeah. I know that, you know, we mentioned we're going to be talking with James Madison's athletic director. So, you know, not to try to like put him on pins and needles or anything, but uh, you know, the Duke's head coach is one that I think that maybe if they're, if they have a good season this year, maybe, um, you know, first year in FBS, they're already three and zero. That uh, maybe they'll start to get some attention there. Uh, this is his fourth season. Um, went fourteen and two, seven and one, and twelve and two in his three seasons. It, you know, at uh, at JMU when they were still in FCS, um, made uh, the championship game and then the semis those three years. So if he has a good year moving in FBS, maybe they get a little attention from that. Um, you know, I think that the Sun Belt probably is a is a conference that's going to get a lot of attention in the next coaching cycle for teams that are looking to hire from the G five, just because they've got coaches who've proven they can go into these Power Five stadiums and win. Uh, they still got a couple of undefeateds, um, some one loss teams. So I think there's a lot of uh, strength there that that conference is building up at least to start the season. So it'll be curious to see if maybe uh, some of those Sun Belt coaches just get poached going forward yeah i think you're right and it kurt signetti with the the jmu coach i mean he's proven success he's he definitely you know at d2 at iup did solidly you know he did good at he got elon into the playoffs a couple of years and then james madison grabbed him and you know he was a runner-up in the national championship two different semifinal appearances and now they're three and oh in their first year in fbs so it, it there's a lot to like there and that's going to be an interesting coaching candidate for a lot of teams, I think, moving forward, especially if JMU continues to win, maybe not you know going undefeated, but it puts together a heck of a record. You'll have a team that can't go bowling, can't do anything because it's still transitioning up from FCS, and that would make him an extremely attractive candidate. Oh, yeah, and I forgot his dad was a Hall of Fame coach at West Virginia. We were talking about West Virginia earlier, but I totally forgot about that. Frank's I think the – oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think that maybe the, the biggest drawback would be his age. You know, he is 61, so a little bit on the older side. Um, but maybe if it's kind of like a, a transitional type hire where you're looking for a guy who can put in, you know, five years at least 
And then, uh, you know, maybe you got a chance to kind of bring in an assistant or something and train them up, um, prep yeah, them to take over. You wanted to toss out there. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, another name that also just like really sticks out in my mind as well. You know, if you're looking again for, you know, who's a guy who has won at multiple different levels, uh, has ties back to Kansas originally. You know, we had Willie Fritz on the show last week, the head coach of Tulane. I mean, this is a dude who played at Pittsburgh State. Uh, He did Juco and he coached uh, even at the high school level uh, in Kansas, has a lot of ties to the state. And, you know, uh, other that could be really great to Kansas boosters uh, experience in beating Kansas State. Uh, you know, Tulane just pulled off that huge upset not too long ago. And this is a guy who he has a modernized offense. He has the ability to use different schemes to adapt to different players. He knows how to win at various levels because he did that at the Juco level. He did that at the FCS level. He did that with Sam Houston State. He's done that with Tulane. Uh, I know age might be a factor there because he's also uh, in his early 60s right now. Uh, but I think if you were looking for somebody else to fit very much in that mold. I mean, Willie Fritz would be a fantastic hire uh, to follow up if uh, Leipold ends up leaving. Willie Fritz was actually... So the top three when Lance Leipold was hired was Monken, Lance, and uh, Mike Elko. But Willie Fritz was actually the next man up. Well, Monken would have been interesting. That would have been a real commitment because, I mean, that's a... He runs... I mean, out of Army, he runs the triple option does he still i mean he runs the option really heavily oh yes you know i mean because that that would be because i remember that was a georgia southern coach actually before fritz took over that's so funny i forgot georgia southern had monken the army hired him then fritz was there for a couple years and then moved to Tulane. so oh it's a rich tapestry the way these coaches all end up moving around (laughs) and hey listen i just want to throw out again the triple option that got georgia tech not only to an acc title uh but that also got to them to an orange bowl victory once upon a time ago so you know the triple option isn't necessarily the worst thing ever we've seen what happened with georgia tech when they decided to abandon it uh god has maybe decided he's done smiting them depending on who they hire next uh but you know uh with the way that kansas is now starting to be on the upward trend uh you could probably even you know if you want to throw another name out there uh i don't know necessarily how well he'd be able to recruit uh, to the uh middle of america as opposed to the beach but jamie chadwell uh with his modernized version of the option as well i think he's a name who might also be out there and especially if kansas made it to a bowl game they have continuing momentum that might be something where they go hey we are desperate for a coach who is successful and knows what to do here we'll throw some money and a long-term contract out there uh that could be one of the jumps and he has two wins over Kansas. <laughs> so, I, I mean, with, I remember those. I mean, they had the pinata, remember? That was, that was classic stuff. Um, you know, one question that was in the – because we had a couple of questions that came in as comments, and I wanted to see if we could touch on those. But what are you guys' thoughts on NC State and Clemson? That's going to be an interesting game. I mean, we'll see how everything goes with all the rain. Uh, obviously, we wish for the safety of everyone who's um, going to be dealing with the hurricane. But what do you guys think of that? NC State at Clemson. I think it's been weird to see Clemson kind of figure out their offense again. We've seen multiple games from him now where, you know, DJ at quarterback is finding ways to actually get points on the board, have a cohesive offense, and find ways to score. 
North Carolina State continues to be a baffling thing to me because this was a North Carolina State team that came in with expectations and with hope. And that, again, we talked about Minnesota having hope being a very dangerous thing. North Carolina State with hope uh, might be an even more dangerous thing. For me, I've been waiting to see what happens with the bottom falling out with the Wolfpack. I'm certainly hoping that they are able to keep it all together and continue to win. We've seen them beat uh, Clemson before. In fact, last year they had the uh, upset victory over Clemson. Uh, but I think overall I have to favor Clemson in this one because I think Clemson is starting to figure out how to be uh, a winning program once again like they were for many, many years over the last couple of years. Uh, and I'm struggling to see how North Carolina State ends up pulling it off this weekend. I think that uh, this Clemson team is is definitely kind of weird to watch because – we most of us expected them to take a step back on defense, um, but it's really baffling just how big of a gap this is compared to past Clemson teams. You know, Brent Venables is, makes a big difference, um, but man, they have they have really regressed, and uh, to the point where even um, Ben Bulware, former linebacker for Clemson, um, you know, when they were making the national title games on a regular basis. Uh, he actually was sounding off on on Saturday during that shootout with Wake Forest, where you know uh, we're looking at Wake Forest setting program records for single season um, touchdown passing, and he was a, a little. Um, I think he took it personally that some people were comparing this year's Clemson defense to the 2014 one, um, and how very very different they were that their secondary was getting torched the way it was, um, that they weren't able to play the way that we expect Clemson to be able to pe- to play um, in the past. And, you know, Sam Hartman is a fantastic quarterback, but Clemson has played fantastic quarterbacks before and not quite given up the kind of yardage, the kind of touchdowns that they gave against this. So it would be inter- interesting to see what NC State can do against them. Um this is not your typical Clemson team. So uh, they've shown that they can take getting punched in the mouth and bounce back. Um, DJ's looking a lot better than he has than he did last year. Um, and it seems like as the season has gone on, he has been doing um, better, uh, getting a better feel for how things are going. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how the, the NC state offense is able to pair up with them. Um, and in terms of just its NC State team looking, you know, different than what we we've seen in the past, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, 2019, fall 2019, Howling Cow NC State ice cream went on the shelves at Harris Teeter. Since then, they've gone eight and four, nine and three, and they're currently sitting at four and zero. Oh. So I'm not saying that they're related, but I'm not not saying that they're related. And I just wanted to, by the way, I wanted to thank uh, Ron uh, Donald for that particular question that was shared with us. You know, uh, um, we have another uh, person up here, uh, not Craig James. What's up? What do you want to wanna talk about? Hey, first of all, I got to say that North Carolina State is, um, I'm really envious of their program. I know that's a program that's never going to be, well, not, I'm not going to say never going to be, but I know that's a program that's not going to be a national championship contender year in and year out. And I know there's a lot of heat under Dave Dorn, but he's turned that program into a really solid program that can win eight, nine games every year in a power conference that's 
pretty good to do, especially when you're NC State. You're never really have been a top 10 program. But uh, speaking of which, uh, a little bit of a G5 uh, guy here. And uh, we had an absolute shit show of a game against um, TCU this weekend. It was not for what you'd expect. Sure, that game was kind of tough. We were down 28-7 at one point, and it sucked to lose to them. But we were not prepared for a sellout. We had 32,000 or 35,000, I think, in the stands. And our, our stadium only seats 32,000. And SMU's um, athletic department was not ready for it. We uh, ran out of water by halftime. Our um, uh, mobile ordering did not work. Beer lines were – it took my folks who were there. You know, they're in their – they're almost 70. My folks were in – it was 98 degrees because it was an 11 a.m. kickoff for me, ESPN, on ESPN News. Um, and it took me forever to get water. But, you know, first of all, I'm playing about the experience. Second of all, I kind of got a question for y'all. Um, do you think ESPN and these these networks have too much power on setting times? Because we saw that being 11 a.m. kickoff, and we set 11 a.m. kickoff in September in Dallas, Texas. That's going to be an issue. And uh, I think everyone had that same thought. And everyone's seen TC play next week and having that same thought. So do you think that early in the year, at least for these Southern schools, these schools should have – uh, more of a uh, a uh, stance or more of a power in setting their game times? Well, uh, first and foremost, I am a TCU alum, so if you want to just keep talking about failures at uh, Gerald Ford Stadium this weekend, you are more well, than welcome to keep well, on I'm, going I'm sorry, on that. I'm sorry, J.D., I forgot <laughs> that this decade most of your failures have came at Amon Carter. Hey, that's true. That's true. Uh, but which, you know, which, I, uh, which I'm currently sitting about a mile from right now. So it's kind <laughs> of funny as, a, uh, as an SME grad being out here. But anyway, uh, go on. But anyway, uh, to answer your actual question, though, uh, in terms of schools having uh, a stronger say on you know whether they want to have something other than 11 a.m. kickoff or better than a 2:30 kickoff, especially if you're in the South or in Texas in September, you want to have night games. That's not just you know better for your players, but for your fan experience as well. Uh, you know, all these schools will go, oh no, oh dear, thank you ESPN for this extra million dollars that you've just paid for us to have this window to sell your advertising. At the end of the day, these schools don't really care as much. About about that game day experience because they're making so much more money on that TV revenue overall uh, that they're really going to want to make sure that they have as much opportunity as possible to get that type of huge paycheck, whether it's ESPN, whether it's Fox, whether it's any channel that's coming in and playing their games. I mean, shoot, uh, this coming week, uh, you know, LSU is going to be having an 11 a.m. kickoff. Uh, this week, again, uh, Oklahoma and TCU will have an 11 a.m. kickoff. Uh, so many games that are happening down in the South. Shoot, we had Texas-Alabama, uh, which was a huge game. It's one of the largest TV games that we've seen all year. Uh, you know, it was 100 degrees during the actual game, even hotter inside of DKR Stadium. After the game, people were jumping into LBJ Fountain just to cool off. Uh, but I guarantee you, when Texas officials saw the eyeballs that were coming off of that game and they saw that check that came in, for all their different product products that they have on Fox Sports on ESPN, uh, I don't think they batted their eyes once because again they had a sellout crowd and SMU, regardless of how they were unready uh, for the actual game to be a sellout, they made their money at the box office. They made their money off of the TV games. They made enough money that it's not an issue to them that it's an 11 a.m. kickoff. Now, as a fan. 
I want to do more night games in Texas, especially when it's hot as hell outside. I think it makes for a better environment. I think it makes for a better situation for your players and their health and safety. But at the end of the day, if a school is going to make way more money by doing just what the TV networks say, they're just going to do what the TV networks say. Yeah, you know, I think I'm about 20 years behind the time because uh, my, biggest, my biggest complaint is how much of a TV-oriented thing it is now and that that goes back to what we had a post about in this the separate a couple days ago uh 320 tv timeouts and everything like that but uh you know that that trains left the station right there but appreciate y'all's perspective yeah thanks for joining us and i i just wanted to say i think you're right it's uh it's tough on the fans and then they wonder why it's it's a bit of a struggle to get people to to want to go to some of the games because sure you're getting these great tv windows and you know i maybe i want to stick with those tv angles it's so funny too because i think that tv network window is what got san diego state to sign up for that ended up being a really terrible game uh, not only for the team but just for the fan experience because they opened that really neat Snapdragon Stadium. Our person who was there, we had someone in the press. Well, okay, they enjoyed the the general idea. The stadium's beautiful, but man, did they have a fiasco of an opening game! It was the it. Now this isn't totally their fault. It ended up being the hottest day ever in the history, I think, of San Diego State football. They they was just some incredibly hot hundred degree day when Arizona came to town. But it was a daytime game. Anyone who's ever watched San Diego State, it's usually at night. And, heck, they were not ready as a, as a stadium, either the press box. Well, I'm probably not going to go into the details, but let's just say they, sh- they found out a lot of things were not quite right. They, they were testing that stadium for the first time, and a lot of things didn't work, and, and not just in the press box everywhere. But, yeah, so sometimes <laughs> they, that was so many different things that went wrong at once, so I, I wouldn't necessarily entirely blame the TV time on that. But it was fun to watch – that you're, you're – Complaints about the, the TCU game definitely reminded me about what we were hearing about what was going there. Well, I, I think that, you know, there's been this this whole thing about COVID staffing. Um, I, I can tell you that even during COVID years, SMU had trouble uh, accommodating beer lines, right? And looking back, uh, our, uh, knowing our school, knowing how much of a uh, regressive, uh, you know, not willing to react or being reactive instead of progressive, our school is. I am shocked that I that I I'm shocked that I expect anything else to happen. Um, because I think that's just the, the reality right now is that you're making so much money off these TV dollars that the end fan exp- or the end game experience suffers as a result. That that becomes on the uh, on the secondary because they're not making a lot of their money through the gate. They're not making a lot of their money through there and. They're making their money from the guys up in the luxury boxes. And that becomes who the stadium caters to. Oh, absolutely. They've got the, and they've got the, all the air conditioning, the catering, and all that stuff. I, I, I definitely – you know, I think one of the things I enjoy about covering a game at like D3 or D2 or, or FCS um, or NAIA or whatever is you get a little bit more of what football was like before TV kind of controlled everything with all the timeouts. I mean, it's amazing to go to a game and it just like blows by because there's no commercials or, um, you know, it, things just move a little bit smoother. So that, that there is something to be said about that. If you ever feel like you need a quick refresh, go to find a. I mean, most cities you've got a good lower division team around you. Go to one of those games and you'll get a yeah. hard reset. I used to actually cover cover D two school, so it was like the issue I had was like I'm still trying to figure out who had the last uh, 
how many yards that punt went for, and all of a sudden they're on offense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I covered a D3 game actually earlier this year, and it was just like, okay, all right, we're already changed. All right, let me just, you know, I, I, you hear that camaraderie in the press box. If there's more than a few people, like, who was that? Okay, wait, what, what just happened? You know, and everyone's doing their best to do it. What were some of the games, what were some of the teams you were covering? Were they in, like, the, the Metroplex? I'm on a burner here, so I don't want to get too specific, but uh, Lone Star Conference. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, yeah, I hear yeah, you. Yeah, you're good for both. You're seeing a lot of good football in that Lone Star Conference. And the thing is, I think a lot of those guys are coming from smaller towns in Texas. And there's a lot of talent in smaller towns. Some of them come from six-man uh, six schools, you know. And, you know, town's 800 kids, but also a lot are coming from JUCO. So when I first went to one of their games, I'm like, you know, how's this football going to be? And you go, you go to those games and be like, this is pretty good football. Now, some of the schools have schicks. They run triple option. They run stuff like that. But. You see a lot of good football, especially back at Tarleton back then. Because Tarleton was would come through town every year and just dominate everyone because they were taking partial qualifiers at the time. But uh, you know, you saw a lot of good football in that uh, in that conference, and it was fun to watch. Uh, and, and you know what? Uh, I kind of get what you're saying. It's fun to go back and just see some of those Lone Star schools. They're selling out their stadium every week, and how pure it is you know i was talking to my buddy that we were watching montana highlights and i've always had a thing for montana and i'm going man i kind of sometimes wish i just live in that like uh innocent living an fps football fan and want nothing more than, than just trying to make the playoff you know yeah you made me think too it's like the the lower division teams like fcsd 2d3 etc it's almost like what attracts people to minor league baseball you know, in that sense, it, it's, you know, it, it's more fun. It's, it's the, the lack of, of glam, but also it just kind of, it feels more personable. And, you know, I, it's always striking, like after, for example, a D3 game, I'm not as familiar with D2, I know Inc. and you are, but, uh, you know, when I cover a game, it's always fun to watch everyone. Then after the game is done, everyone just goes on the field, like players, family, coaches, media, you want to interview a coach, try and just walk on the field and talk to him right there. Um, which is always something striking to see. That's what's great about the smaller ball games, at least in years prior, like what, 2018 or 2019? I can't remember. The Bahama Ball, there was just like security guards who just let people walk onto the field. And oh, that was a legendary game. I, I think the Bahamas Bowl is like still on my bucket list. Not just because it's the Bahamas, but because like that, that's football. It's absolutely pure fun. And that's really the only type of football game I would. <laughs> go to now is one that's just literally just everyone's just having a great time everyone's just getting drunk nothing like the players are probably having an absolute blast probably all-star game level tackling or pro bowl game level tackling <laughs> uh r.i.p pro bowl by the way hey, you know, but, uh, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I i'm not sure if this is the proper form to share this but if y'all are really into kind of the history of college football and talking a little bit about that, there's a really cool channel right now on YouTube called, I swear it's not my channel, I'm not doing any self-promotion, I discovered it the other day, called Wronged Sports. Uh, Wronged Sports. It talks a little bit about, you know, kind of what we're talking about too is just, you know, how hard it was for schools back in these days to get this gate revenue and how much they relied on gate revenue, but they do a lot on, you know, discontinued college football teams and I guess – kind of to tie things back to the, the TV discussion, just how blessed we are to have a lot of these colleges propped up by TV revenue, even though we complain about it, um, how much it makes a difference for funding programs, for funding whole conferences, really. 
Absolutely. Well, hey, you know, I know, and I totally get the burner thing. <laughs> Thank you, uh, not Craig James. We really appreciate hearing from you. You had some really great feedback and just thoughts. Thanks so much. I appreciate um, it. Uh, I'm going to try to just kick me off now. I don't know how to. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, just mute. We'll be fine. Hey, yeah, boy, Ron, we heard you a couple of seconds ago. You're here to tell us about how Rutgers is going to go shock the world at number three Ohio State this weekend. Uh, unfortunately, no. I, I think we're going to lose now. You know, my my four and Rutgers prediction did not come to fruition. Aww. so close. Such too. A- we were really hoping to see how that was going to go. I uh, mean, I was I, I came in here thumping my chest, shouting that shit, and then it just fell apart real badly. Ah, uh, hubris. It's it's just the thing, yeah. JD. Well, I was about to say, you know, maybe Rutgers isn't going to win this weekend, but they are at least. Are they going to cover 40 points? Because I think that spread right now is about 40, 41. Somewhere in that range right now is Rutgers uh, at least going to stay more competitive uh, than Wisconsin did. No, no, not at all. No, we're going we're gonna to lose by six. <laughs> it's not close, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a shit show. I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready for this game. It's going to be a murder. <laughs> Ah, classic Rutgers, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, but I mean, after that, after that, you guys got Nebraska coming to town. That should theoretically be a good oh, way to get that no, we, track. We have to win that game because my friend Jake's a huge uh, Nebraska fan, and I've been talking so much shit about Nebraska for the past year that if we lose, I think I have to leave the college football group chat I'm in with them. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good way for Drake, my boys. The holes we dig for ourselves among our our uh, <laughs> among our friends, yeah. Well, what are your thoughts about what are your thoughts about culture ball this week or this past weekend? How did you think the Iowa game went? Uh, well, the Iowa game, honestly, it started off. I was feeling really good. I think the issue is that Rutgers has like quarterbacks that are hurt right now. Like Gavin Wimsat's not a hundred percent. Noah Vedrill's not a hundred percent. Evan Simon isn't even a hundred percent. So every all our quarterbacks are just playing hurt right now. So it was just destined to fail from the start. But uh, I gotta say, man, I you know I just wanted to come here and say I don't know if we have any Georgia fans here, but I moved down to Georgia to Atlanta a few months ago, and for the longest time I thought Alabama fans were the most annoying. But after living in Georgia, I gotta say it's it's Georgia fans actually. <laughs> We've been barked at any chance, or I have. Yeah. That's happened to me in Athens already. Nice. I was well, out. There's, I was drinking you know, there's outside. There's nothing finer in the land than a drunk, obnoxious Georgia fan. Um. <laughs> Listen, here's the thing: like, they call into the radio shows sometimes, and they're like, "I'm upset that we didn't win by 80." It's like, dude, you're probably going to repeat this year. What are you upset about? Like, how can you find anything to complain about? Like, there are teams out here that can't even put up a touchdown against. It that can't score touchdowns. Rutgers can't score any touchdowns. And these guys are complaining because they're not, they're not putting up 80 points a game. So Georgia fans, you guys got to learn how to calm down. That's all I have to say for this week. (laughs) Thanks, man. We appreciate hearing from you. You know, JD, if you got a second, I'd love to get your thoughts on Texas tech because this was a heck of a weekend for them. And we've, we obviously we had Joey McGuire on the show earlier in the season, for me, uh, earlier uh, in the, right before the season began. What do you think in there? How do you think Texas Tech's looking right now? 
Uh, I think first and foremost right now, uh, Joey McGuire is delivering the goods that Texas Tech fans were desperate to see out of their new head coach. I mean, this is the first time they've beaten Texas in Lubbock since Crabtree pulled free uh, back in 2008. This is the second ranked upset that they've had at AT&T Jones, which again, like we've had two different field rushings and there was a bit of a little bit of a brouhaha happening after that about, uh, you know, players being shoved by fans and, uh, you know, fans being shoved by players. Uh, we had uh, a couple of folks who were throwing down horns down in front of Hookham, all that other kind of joy that happens during a field rush. But I think for right now, this is a great time to be a Texas Tech fan because you wanted to see energy, you wanted to see competition, and you wanted to see your football play be elevated. And right now, Texas Tech is doing all of that. I mean, this was a program that had not upset a ranked opponent at home uh, since, uh, you know, the days of Mike Leach when you would have a Graham Harrell at quarterback, when you have guys like Michael Crabtree uh, playing as well. And the fact that you have uh, this guy in Joey McGuire who is so well-respected in Texas coaching circles. I mean, we had him on the show uh, not too long ago, uh, right before the season started, and when you talked to him, you wanted to run through a brick wall for this guy. Uh, he was an incredible guest to have on our program, and right now, if you are loving the energy that's happening at Texas Tech, this seems like something that's going to go on for a while in Lubbock. I think it's a really exciting time to see uh, everything that's going well for the Red Raiders right now, and especially as this season turns on, I think bowl eligibility won't just be a goal. Uh, I think it's going to be an actuality because they still have so many different teams that they can still beat on their schedule to try to get them up to at least six wins. And right now, I mean, you can take your uh, pick of somewhere where West Virginia, uh, where Neil Brown looks a little bit on the hot seat. Uh, we know that Kansas is on fire right now but uh that's a winnable game when you've got that in lubbock uh you're playing tcu uh on the road in what's going to be probably your spiciest road game of the year and then you pull you know one or two more out of that uh and you're looking at a pretty good uh schedule for you to actually get into a bowl game this year for texas tech which i think would be a massive great first step on a great foundation for Joey McGuire. And as that recruiting continues to build, I think this is a great time for Texas tech. And especially, you know, when you're a Texas program and Texas comes to your place for presumably the last time in a long time, and you get to announce that you've got a win, that's always going to be a huge feather in your cap. You know, one other thing I wanted to ask since I've got you guys here, if, well, what do we think about Wazoo? Because they had, you know, they uh, we were talking about them earlier with the upset over Wisconsin. But now they had that game with Oregon. It was a close fight. Where are we thinking about them? How do we think Wazoo's going to look? I mean, may not be any shame losing. It was a big close game against number 15 Oregon. And, you know, they've got Cal this week. Can they put it together? I mean, they're going to be playing at USC. That's going to be a, a tough order. But do we think they're going to have? <laughs> do we think they're going to have much of a chance moving forward into this season to to make some waves and and again break through, continue that early season? Because I mean, to be fair, they played two. You know, they played an FCS team, fine with Idaho, bit of a rival, but it is what it is. You know, they plowed through Colorado State, but seems like anyone can at this point. Where do we think Wazoo's going to be? Yeah, for. 
the schedules we looked at this year is there maybe a what wound up being a more underwhelming way to go three and zero to start the season because Colorado State obviously is is bad bad. Um, really wish we could see Colorado State versus Colorado this year just determine which one was worse. Because yeah, this would be the ultimate toilet bowl for Colorado. This, I mean, the state of Colorado. Those high high elevation really- toilet bowl this year. If they were playing, maybe somebody will have like a cancellation or something like the last second, and they can do a. That's uh, what I'm hoping. Like maybe they're both winless, and they just decide like, what if we just play an exhibition game so that one of us can experience what it's like to win a game in 2022? But Wisconsin, I mean, that one is is kind of a real. That's rough because you go into it and, and you go into Camp Randall Stadium and you come away with a close win and you think, yes, you know, this is this is a great sign for our program. And then Wisconsin plays more games. You're like, yeah, they blew out in New Mexico State, whatever. Um, they got drubbed by Ohio State. And it's not the kind of a Wisconsin team we're used to seeing. And I don't know why I always end up being the one who has to talk about Wisconsin. Um, but you know, here we are. They should give me an honorary degree at this point. Hey, we we I, I we put a brick by Camp Randall Stadium with our CFB, and I've seen. It. I actually went and drove by it last July. So there is, if you ever go by Camp Randall, there they have a whole field of bricks somewhere on the southeast side. Man, you can you can see it there. I know. Poor Sirius' uh, folks just died on him. He just let me know. That's why I keep mine in the charger. But, um, you know, there's an interesting follow-up here because I've been looking at the comments that people have been leaving um, before we kind of wrap up here. One question, this is by Caster Lawson. If the last CFP spot comes down to one loss pack, to one loss pack 12 champ Oregon or a one loss UGA who just lost to Bama, in the SEC championship game, who gets the spot? I mean, I'm all, I, I, yeah, uh, Georgia would be my immediate thought. I don't know if, <laughs> JD, could you possibly think of a situation where that doesn't become Georgia's spot? If they're picking between one loss, I mean, they're going to be able to just write it off immediately, like we already saw them play. Granted, it was the beginning of the season, but the, the reigning national champ would, would clearly get that opportunity. To, to, I think, get that spot from the playoff committee. Don't you agree? Yeah. I mean, immediately I would have to feel that the only real way that you would have an opportunity where Georgia doesn't uh, get that spot in that specific scenario, again, that's assuming Georgia is uh, 12 and 1. Their only losses to Alabama in the SEC championship game versus a one loss Pac 12 champion Oregon. I think the only way that doesn't happen is going to be something along the lines of, you know, Georgia just kind of does like a Florida State and starts to like really decline where they win a bunch of really close, weird one score games as they go down through the end of the stretch. Uh, you know, maybe you get into the very end of Georgia's schedule where you're playing against teams like Georgia Tech and you're starting to go, Huh, a nine to six win over Georgia Tech without a uh, head coach is kind of a spec win. Um, and then they go into the SEC championship game, get plastered by Alabama by 63. Whereas, you know, the one loss Oregon would be like, let's say they lost a nail biter uh, to a, uh, you know, opponent that they get to play again. Uh, in the Pac-12 championship. Again, it's open division now in the Pac-12. It could be anybody on that remaining schedule with Oregon. 
Uh, but then they go in and they win by 63. I think that's the only way you would see Oregon jump over Georgia for that fourth spot. And again, this is going to be assuming that, you know, Clemson runs the table, Ohio State runs the table. Uh, Bama is also uh, there as the SEC champion. Uh, I would assume that's the case in order for them to uh, have to have that type of fourth spot. But between those two scenarios, it would have to be Georgia would have to be doing some really uncharacteristic and terrible football down the stretch and getting absolutely pummeled by Bama to not get that fourth spot. You know, one last thought I just wanted to share, and this was something from a uh... Someone again who's who's writing I admire a lot. Chris Ferguson had dropped this in earlier when we were talking a little bit D two football in Texas. Um, he covers D two, and he he just wanted to add that um, you know since the Lone Star Conference came up, he he said the best stadium in D two is West Texas, uh, West Texas A and M, and the you know the D two championship game in recent years. Yeah, it's been in I think it's McKinney, isn't it? It's uh, McKinney I, ISD Stadium. Yes, um, yes, that they've is correct. The uh, last north, three, and I think they got the, the one more coming up. Yeah, uh, that is uh, in the northeast quadrant of uh, DFW, where they have a propensity to spend some money on high school football stadiums. I mean, this is where uh, the birth of the mega high school stadium began with Allen ISD. They already have about seven thousand students on their own. Uh, uh, high school campus uh, and counting. So they ended up spending roughly about $70 million to build this first stadium. And then they poured millions more into it when they found out that fa- the foundation was cracked and they had to close it within about two years. Uh, but then oh, of course, yeah. McKinney, McKinney ISD is right next door to it. So they built a huge, massive facility. Uh, you have the star, uh, which is there, which is the Cowboys uh, practice facility. But in order to get in there, they had to do a deal with Frisco ISD to showcase games that are happening in there. So one of the things that I've also loved out there is Melissa ISD, which is a town of 13,000 people. It's just up the road from Allen and McKinney on US 75. Uh, They just passed a bond to build a $35 million stadium that will host more than the entire town combined uh, in this stadium for their future and potential growth. Uh, One of the things that I've always loved and I've always wanted to get a story on is with these kids who are the borderline three stars and they're trying to get recruited into the college levels. I've always wanted to do a follow-up story with those kids that go to a Mac school or a lower level uh, school where they don't play in stadiums or in weight rooms that are as nice as their high school stadiums were and how they end up looking at college football after going through some of the highest and the best sports facilities to play high school football in. Uh, But I will at least attest, I have covered a couple of national championships at the D2 level at McKinney ISD. It is a gorgeous stadium uh, and it is better than some of the college stadiums that I have actually gone to a football game in. Man, gotta love Texas. You know, on that note, I think we're going to go ahead and start wrapping this up at 11.20 p.m. We've gone a little bit over, which we tend to do. We love hearing from you. Thanks to everyone who's joined us. You know, there's a hurricane that's coming out there. We just want to say, all of you out there, please be careful if you're in the path of it. Play it safe. You know, your life is worth more than anything else. So that's all I just wanted to say on that. And On behalf of all of us, thank you for joining us. We always love spending Tuesday nights with you. Hope you all have a great rest of your evening, and we'll talk to you again now on The Hang Up and Listen.